0: Welcome to Meno Healthcast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with the Mennonite Incorporated. Today, March 12, 2020, we have a special episode related to the novel coronavirus, known as COVID-19. Many people have felt inundated with reports about the coronavirus and unsure about what to really believe about the information they’re receiving. I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger, a pediatric anesthesiologist in Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm interviewing Dan Nofziger, Chief Medical Officer at Goshen Health and a specialist in infectious disease. Dr. Nofziger, is all the current fervor in the reporting about COVID-19 justified?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I think it is going to be a big deal for many communities, if not all communities in the United States. We haven't really seen a virus like this come through in my lifetime. I mean, probably the closest thing I can compare it to would be the Spanish flu of 1918-ish. You know, most of the people that lived through that are no longer living and don't have that history to pass along to us. This virus does seem to be able to uh, spread as rapidly or perhaps more rapidly than a typical seasonal influenza. And it's also killing people at a higher rate, as best we can tell at this time.
0: Can you compare the flu with the COVID-19 a little bit more?
1: Well, so one of the things they have in common is they both cause fever, and fever is the most common symptom for COVID-19. You can also see muscle aches in about a third of people, which, again, resembles the flu. The COVID-19 has a dry cough in about two-thirds of cases, and unfortunately, the combination of fever and a dry cough, while they're the most common things and they're easy to ask people about, they're very nonspecific because lots of other viruses like uh, respiratory syncytial virus or what people call RSV, um, influenza A and influenza B, and then a number of other respiratory viruses cause very similar symptoms. And so and a person doesn't really have a good way to say this is something that uh, maybe my body has seen before or experienced before. Uh, versus this is an entirely new virus that I don't have any immunity to and which potentially can make me quite sick.
0: I've heard a lot of talk about the death rate from COVID-19 ranging anywhere from almost nothing in the pediatric population to maybe 15-20% in the elderly population. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so I don't think we have a real good understanding why kids are spared as well as they are and why older folks, are so much more susceptible and have such a higher death rate, and we actually don't have a great handle on whether that death rate is really accurate or not because testing has been fairly limited, particularly in the in the United States, and there's been some suggestion that there actually are quite a few asymptomatic patients or patients that have such minimal symptoms that they really don't come to medical attention. So, it would be possible that over time we'll find that what looks like a 3% death rate only turns out to be a 1% death rate or something like that because there are that many more asymptomatic patients that we hadn't been identifying. But the downside of that is that if there are this big, uh, you know, sort of iceberg under the water phenomenon of a lot of asymptomatic people, it makes it so much harder for public health officials or medical professionals to kind of track the virus's flow through a population and therefore to interrupt that spread. So in a sense, the fact that the original SARS, uh, which is a similar virus, killed so many people or was so much more efficient at killing people, it actually made it a little easier to track and interrupt the spread. This virus has gone worldwide in part because we think that there are people that don't have symptoms or there are people who are spreading the virus before they actually have symptoms.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard a really wide range of morbidity rates. and But still, even with that wide range, I do understand that it is more likely to cause death than the flu that we're seeing this season. Is that your understanding?
1: Yeah. So the the case fatality rate or the way epidemiologists tend to measure how many people die from a specific virus. For seasonal influenza, it's estimated about a tenth of 1%. So if this turns out to be, say, um, 3%, that would make it 30 times as deadly as seasonal flu. And like I said, if there is a, a big pool of patients we're not identifying yet that get this, and maybe we're only identifying half the cases that would still be, um, you know, 15 times as deadly as seasonal flu. It's quite different in that regard. If You're looking for a bit of a silver lining. Seasonal flu does tend to kill more babies and young children, and then after you get out of, you know, the first year of life, it's not quite as deadly, and then it, it gets more and more deadly as you get older. And we haven't seen that other part of the curve with the the novel coronavirus where, where children are dying. But I suspect as this goes through a large percentage of the population, we will, we will see some pediatric deaths. It's just not nearly as high a rate compared to the, the elderly.
0: We've been hearing a lot about the death rate from COVID-19 or the mortality, but I've heard very little about the morbidity or the long-term effects of having been severely ill with COVID-19. What do you know about the morbidity caused by COVID-19?
1: Yeah, I don't think we know a lot yet because um, the first people that were getting infected with this virus were basically in China in late December. And while the epidemic really took off in China in January and February, it really escaped China and has become a problem in the rest of the world, primarily in late February and into March. And so we don't really have experience with long-term effects from the virus. I would imagine that um, folks that are the sickest and wind up on ventilators and so forth and survive will have prolonged recovery periods because of the muscle wasting and just the toll that this kind of a severe illness can take on your body. While I don't know anything specific about the long-term impact this will have on patients, as we look at other kinds of viruses like influenza, for those people that have been really sick and been on a ventilator perhaps for a long time or had um, what we call ARDS or this process where fluid fills the lungs, those folks can take a long, long time to recover. And some of them, while they survive, don't ever really get all the way back to to where they were before they got mm-hmm. sick. So there, there's mm-hmm. still a lot we don't know about that. For the cases that have been diagnosed or proven to be COVID-19, it looks like about 80% of people really have a relatively mild illness and don't require having to be in the hospital. But it's probably another 15% or so that are much sicker and have to be hospitalized. And some of those do have to be supported on a ventilator to prolong their lives. We all are worried about that 2 or 3% that die. The good news is that an average person that has this kind of infection will actually not get so sick that they have to go to the hospital and it and it will seem more like a, a flu-like illness and less like a life-threatening illness.
0: Yeah, it sounds like what you're telling me is many people will not know they have a serious viral infection because it, it's not serious in their case. And then potentially it sounds like they can then spread it before they might even be tested.
1: That's exactly right. And particularly in the United States where the testing has been so delayed in uh, being rolled out, there are a lot of people who have been sick and uh, don't know it yet.
0: Is that why we're seeing some of these exponential increases in the viral spread?
1: I think so. I mean, the data or information we have so far about the spread suggests that someone with this disease actually will, on average, spread it to another two or three people. Now, that's in a in a population where nobody has immunity, And so over time, that's how these things eventually slow down and burn themselves out As it gets harder and harder for the virus to actually find somebody who's not immune and who um, isn't um, protected by their prior infection. But as it's introduced to populations or people groups where nobody has seen the virus before, it is doubling or tripling with every cycle of the virus's life. On average, this is a five-day incubation period. It can be significantly shorter than that, and um, it typically doesn't go out further than two weeks. But even if you said, on average, um, a week, you can see how an infection that's doubling and doubling or tripling and tripling every week in a population, the numbers can skyrocket. And they'll doubly skyrocket as we test a lot more people and the milder cases are detected.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're saying the number of cases will increase that we know about because we're able to test for them, even though the actual cases may or may not have increased at the same rate once we have these tests right. available.
1: Right. Initially, that rate should be higher, but it is partially an artifact because the number of tests have gone up. Like in my county in Indiana, I'm not aware of anybody who's actually gotten their test results back yet. So Uh, We could have no cases, we could have dozens of cases, we could have hundreds of cases. Until we get testing much more widespread, we're not really going to know, you know, how that's been doubling based on uh, the data that's come out of China and not really based on an American experience at this point. Mm
0: -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit why the test kit was so slow to become available?
1: Well, there were problems with uh, the initial test kit that was pushed out from the CDC, They've been uh, reasonably mum about exactly what happened there, but apparently they were getting a high percentage of inconclusive results in the test when it actually went out to the state labs and was being implemented there. So I think eventually that'll become clear, but I've not really heard a detailed and clear explanation of, of what happened there, and they may still be figuring it out.
0: Can you talk a little bit about why healthcare systems might become overwhelmed by the number of cases? Um, reports from Italy just show that the healthcare system there was not able to handle the number of sick people. How does that happen?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there's been a uh, a big push for I think it's fair to say decades in this country for health systems to become more and more efficient and to eliminate what people call unnecessary beds. Most health systems, at least in our area, during flu season basically fill up. And we've had times in the recent past where we've had patients waiting in waiting rooms or in emergency rooms for admission to the hospital because all the beds are full. In my hospital, for example, we have quite a few semi-private rooms. When there are infectious outbreaks like influenza, We don't put an uninfected patient in a room with an infected patient, and so a single patient may actually occupy what would otherwise be two beds. We just don't have a lot of extra capacity. We don't have nurses that are sitting around waiting for an epidemic to occur, and we don't have a lot of extra physicians on staff. They're expensive people to employ, and so hospitals and health systems tend to keep them very busy. To uh, have them earn their way. And all of those kind of factors just contribute to um, to not having as much excess capacity. In addition, hospitals have gotten, we would say, leaner and leaner. There are uh, ways of thinking about eliminating waste and making organizations more efficient that's referred to as using lean tools. And those kind of tools have also streamlined or made more efficient things like how we stock our hospitals with supplies Mm -hmm. and how many days of a given supply we have on hand. The world has gotten gradually more interconnected where supplies are coming from all over the globe to serve our patients, and we have fewer and fewer things that have just been sitting on shelves waiting to be used and more things that arrive on the loading dock on a regular basis as we need them. There are lots of different reasons but it all adds up to not having a lot of extra capacity to uh, to flex up in a short order in order to serve more patients.
0: As you know, I'm an anesthesiologist, so in the ORs this week, I was just calculating the number of ORs in my hospital, just thinking of how we could convert those ORs into ICU beds. And we could probably add 50 ICU beds just because of the number of ORs we have. We'd have to leave some for emergency procedures, of course, but there would be some availability for us to expand there. And I was also thinking that elective surgeries may need to be canceled because we're using a limited number of supplies. And if we're using them for elective things, meaning things that don't necessarily have to happen, um, then they're not available for the patients who are critically ill. What are other preparations that hospitals are taking around the country?
1: Well, a lot of people are scrambling to get more personal protective equipment for their employees, We have been dependent on a lot of personal protective equipment that's actually made in China, and the Chinese manufacturing sector has been disrupted because of the coronavirus there. In addition, we do have just a worldwide kind of supply chain for a lot of these pieces of equipment. So, for example, I heard this week we were supposed to get a significant shipment of masks in And they were coming from Saudi Arabia, and then Saudi Arabia decided that they were not going to be exported, and they weren't allowed to leave the country. Those kind of things are things we don't think about on a daily basis, but do have a direct impact on the people providing care. In addition to things like personal protective equipment, there's just other basic equipment that is manufactured in China. And... You probably think about this more with like automobiles where you hear about all the different countries that wind up making parts that go into an individual car. If you have all the parts for the car except for the alternator, that is still a real problem in having a functioning car. And there are just so many bits and pieces and raw materials and elements that go into lots of different products that are made in China that it has disrupted a lot of supply chains for things that hospitals are used to getting without a struggle.
0: So it sounds like the very fact that this is a pandemic where countries all over the world are being affected affects the supply chain and then the supplies that our hospitals need to prepare for the pandemic while it, when it hits here.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right.
0: Mm-hmm. What does it mean exactly that the WHO declared this to be a pandemic?
1: Well, I think for an average infectious disease doctor or an epidemiologist, it actually doesn't mean a lot. This is a term that's used to describe a virus that is basically spread worldwide. And at a certain point, some days ago, I think it became obvious that this was a virus that was going to continue to spread worldwide. I think the World Health Organization has been kind of late in getting around to to calling it a pandemic, but... They were still trying to do all the things that they could to avert a pandemic. So to me, it's more a matter of semantics or how you want to label what's happening rather than really making a big difference.
0: I called my parents this week, and I told them that they need to stay home. They need to isolate themselves, make some common-sense decisions like staying out of public gathering spots. They're both 70 years old and have some medical issues. Do you think I'm being an alarmist?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know exactly where they live. It certainly feels safer to uh, be out and about in Goshen where we don't have any identified cases than it would be if you were in Washington State or Seattle where the spread has been uh, more rapid. But because we're concerned that we have it here, um, even in the absence of testing, I think that is actually probably a reasonable precaution. They are at higher risk for the more serious outcomes, And it is not um, a situation where you can just look at the person that handled the doorknob before you or pushed the elevator button before you and know that they are virus-free. So I think it is time for people to start being more concerned about what they're uh, doing. I think a lot of the basic public health messages have been reiterated a lot in the media about um, covering your cough, washing your hands, staying home if you're sick. And I think all that is good advice, but avoiding large gatherings and places where there are likely to be people who want to be there bad enough to come, even if they're not feeling well, is good advice at this time.
0: In my institution, we are limiting large gatherings to 25 people and, and less. But the governor, Governor Hogan, said 250 people and less. It sounds like it's up for interpretation.
1: Yeah, well, there really is many magic number, and that's part of the problem. This is, in my mind, it's a continuous variable, not a discrete variable. If you say the number 50, for example, it's really hard to make a strong case for 49 versus 51. And I think it really actually has more to do with the risk-benefit of what you're engaged in and the actual activity that you're engaged in. I think... Having 50 people outside watching a track meet or a cross-country meet is probably substantially less risky than having 50 people in a crowded restaurant who are all going around shaking hands with each other and giving kisses on the cheek and long, passionate hugs. So there are certain kinds of events that are going to be more dangerous than other events, even with the same number of people involved, where people are face-to-face where people are physically interacting, it's just very different than if you're outside and are able to space yourselves out. Obviously, we're, we're talking, I think, the night after the NBA decided to suspend the season. And, you know, I think, like, playing NBA basketball would, in my mind, be a very high-risk activity where you see um, people are in each other's faces, they're touching each other. There may be spittle coming out of their mouths as they exert themselves. And that kind of an event, even if you were just playing five-on-five and there are only 10 people involved, to my mind, would be a pretty risky kind of interaction, whereas you could have 500 people in line walking six feet apart, which might be a pretty low-risk kind of interaction. So the numbers, I think we're going to continue to see different people choosing different numbers, but I think it is just as important kind of what the event is and then the other thing to consider is just, you know, how important the event is. It's obviously a bigger deal to cancel a wedding than to cancel a child's piano recital. There are just all kinds of variables that could be factored in, and just depending on a number, I think, is is always going to raise questions with some people saying the number is too high or the number is too low.
0: Sure. It also sounds you're talking a little bit about social distancing and how I've interpreted that is meaning give yourself six feet between you and the next person, keeping your hands off each other as well.
1: Yeah. There, I think, has been some confusion around this, partly because we don't actually know a lot about how the virus spreads. But partly because the CDC has used the label of airborne precautions, um, and that makes people think about things like chickenpox and TB, where the organism can drift kind of you know down the hall and around the corner and cause infections. This doesn't seem to be quite that kind of a virus. It does seem to be more droplet spread, and typically that three to six feet distance is, where those big droplets are going to fall out of the air and either land on the floor or land in your eyes, nose, and mouth and uh, cause infection.
0: And that and would be so, more like the common cold or the, or even yep. the flu would, would be other illnesses that would be transmitted in that way via droplet.
1: Yeah. And these do tend to um, also be pretty easily passed by uh, contact. So, for example, I'm playing cards with you, I sneeze on my hand, I pick up the cards, I handle the cards, I load the card up with virus, you handle the cards next, and then you touch your eyes or nose or mouth with your hand and, and inoculate the virus into your uh, into your body. So that contact part of this is also important, but that is something that you at least have some more control over in terms of being able to disinfect surfaces or say, I'm not going to shake your hand, I'm not going to play cards, uh, than droplets where you might just be, you know, passing by walking uh, near someone who sneezes on you.
0: Do you have any thoughts on who should go ahead and self-isolate right now?
1: Well, if you have a community transmission of this virus at this time, I would say you'd be a good person to uh, self-isolate. Now, that's really talking more about social distancing than uh, maybe, uh, strictly speaking, never stepping outside your house. But the challenge is that even though we've talked about this being a threat or a bigger threat to the elderly, there really isn't anything to say that allowing young people to get it isn't gonna spread it to the next elderly person. And so we see lots of uh, illnesses that pass from child to parent or parent uh, to grandparent, and uh, having the kids get infected is, is maybe not, you know, not a reassuring thing. And so the social distancing is really trying to get uh, large numbers of people away from each other so that if there is an infection, it can be limited to, say, the bedroom you're sleeping in and not spread to the rest of your family or the rest of your neighborhood.
0: I've heard the terms isolate and quarantine. Can you just clarify the difference between those?
1: Well, uh, generally people use isolation as, well, we isolate patients in hospitals. We put them in a room by themselves and they are kept there on their own. Quarantine is usually used for um, folks that actually aren't sick yet and who are being separated from the rest of the population so that if and when they do get sick, they don't wind up spreading the infection to other people. Quarantines can be voluntary or they can be things that are enforced by the the government saying, yes, you are going to follow our rules and you are not going to leave, whether it's a a military base or your home or wherever. Those people aren't necessarily sick.
0: So if I can interpret a little bit, it sounds to me like. Even though our college students and university students, elementary, high school students, they're not the major risk group, it makes some sense to cancel their classes because they can carry these symptoms without or, – or maybe they're asymptomatic. They can carry the virus asymptomatically and then pass it on to other people who may continue to pass it on to other people, and then eventually we may – get it to a very vulnerable population like it happened out in Seattle. And then that's when we really see the major effects of this virus.
1: That's correct. If you have a toddler or if you've had a toddler, you certainly know they don't have a sense of personal hygiene like an adult does. And so they are more likely to get into each other's um, secretions and rapidly spread viral illnesses to to each other. And to a certain degree, that's also true for high school and college students, you know, they live in dorm settings where they're just physically closer to each other and have more interactions. Maybe they're sharing the same bathrooms, and it's just easier for virus to pass in those kind of settings where either the child is too young to know about hand hygiene and how to protect him or herself, or the child is a young adult and is just in close proximity to lots of other young adults and makes it easy for the virus to spread.
0: So as I'm thinking about this, I'm wondering, should churches be canceled and how do our churches, because I'm going to turn this to our personal communities as opposed to our hospital communities, but our personal community, which we're also very dedicated to, how do we help churches know when they need to cancel, when they need to start thinking about recording a service and putting it online or doing it via Zoom or, or
1: something like that? These questions are are pretty tricky, particularly when we don't have the kind of information that we like in terms of whether the virus is even present in our communities.
0: And again, that goes back to the fact we really had delayed testing.
1: Right, right. You could picture, say, a church in the United States having started to cancel services the first week of January, say they canceled it all through January and then all through February. And It would be possible that after a couple months, people would say, well, this is ridiculous. I don't trust what people are telling me anymore. I I don't believe that a pandemic is coming. And it might lead people to not only disregard whoever was making that choice in the past, but also might lead them to make poor decisions when the virus did arise in their community. On the other hand, if you uh, wait too long, and you have one sick person come into your, your church and they infect three elderly people and they all die, you would find it hard to forgive yourself for having delayed too long. And oftentimes, those interventions also, it's hard to prove that they were effective. So we cancel church this Sunday. We don't actually know if anybody's sick. Uh, would have shown up, and we don't know if any lives were saved by that effort. It's hard to prove that that kind of an intervention actually worked because it worked, and there aren't the sick people to demonstrate the bad choice. It's a hard thing to decide. We've just started in Goshen having conversations about this for our churches for next Sunday. We haven't come to final decisions, but it is hard when you see the virus spreading in other communities that aren't very far away, to feel good about going forward with, you know, a reasonably large-sized meeting if you know that you are potentially putting your most vulnerable church members at risk.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about several months from now, are there church practices that maybe we should change due to this viral illness?
1: I don't know Mm -hmm. how widely it's been disseminated, but uh, Dan Schrock, one of the pastors at Berkey Avenue Mennonite Fellowship in Goshen, actually... Put together a document and got some edits from a couple of folks in the congregation with healthcare related experience to come up with some guidelines or suggestions for how we might live together as a church community and still protect each other. I think that was shared with Indiana Michigan Conference, and I don't know if that's been shared more widely in the Mennonite Church. I think the executive director of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship was going to put it on our website. So you may be able to to get more detail about the kinds of things we were thinking about for our congregation. But you can sort of look at the things that we do as a church to build intimacy, particularly physical intimacy, and most of those things are the things we probably shouldn't be doing in the setting of a pandemic. Whether that's passing the peace by shaking hands or whether that's having all the children come up front and sit as closely together as they can in order to hear a story, or whether it's the way we take communion and we're um, pulling pieces of bread off the loaf, uh, piece by piece with our hands, and then uh, dunking it into a common cup. There are lots of things we could do that would be uh, potentially ways to spread this particular virus. Even simple things like uh, having a greeter at the front door we're having the pastors shake everyone's hands as they exit the sanctuary are things that uh, we should probably give up now for some months until this passes.
0: Yeah, it's very hard to hear you say that it, it, these are the practices that we have to build intimacy in our congregational life. But you're you're absolutely right about that. What do you think we should do for the people in our community? Maybe for those who might be self-isolating or are nursing home members. Like, do you have you given any thought about how we can support those members of our community during this? Well,
1: yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for for people to pull together and and help each other. I think of simple things like having a buddy system, where you know we have lots of uh, older individuals that are widows or widowers who live by themselves, and particularly as American families have scattered across the country more, they may not have children living in their community. I think this is a great opportunity to buddy up to those folks and a younger person in in the community checking in and keeping tabs on, on them and seeing if they need help either getting groceries or getting other kinds of supplies and just making sure that if they are starting to get ill that they can get to the healthcare services that they need. Those are simple examples, but I think there are lots of ways that particularly older folks and younger folks could interact where maybe the younger person is not really at nearly as high a risk for a bad outcome from this virus, and they're able to help that older person isolate themselves more and stay out of harm's way more effectively. Hopefully for a year or two or three or however long it's going to take to come up with a vaccine that can protect people that don't have immunity. We don't have promises. There are always optimistic projections about when vaccines might be available, but it, I think pretty unrealistic to, to feel confident that we'll have a vaccine in less than a year. And a lot of us are going to be infected with this virus uh, before that year passes.
0: Yeah, I believe Angela Merkel from Germany mentioned 60 to 70 percent of the population is what her advisors were telling her would be infected before this virus would really run its infectious course.
1: Yeah, so, you know, if you think of somebody, maybe they have uh, 10 people that they interact with a lot. That first case is likely to infect the next two or three, and then those folks are going to infect multiple people, but as you get more and more of the group that are already infected or who've already recovered from the virus, it gets harder and harder for the virus to spread. There just aren't that many susceptible people in the population left to get the infection. It really could be a situation where we have 70% of the population that's infected before it really um, uh, slows down a lot.
0: It sounds like this kind of ties into what I've heard called flattening the curve. I've interpreted this to mean that we need to slow the spread of the virus, because once a large portion of the population is infected, the virus will be more likely to spontaneously die out before it can really reemerge. I think this kind of like herd immunity from vaccinations, like we try to vaccinate our children, meaning the more people in the community that have an immunity, the less likely you'll have a whole lot of people who get sick. I think
1: the other thing is really matching up the resources we have to fight the virus or to control the virus with the rate at which people are getting sick. So if we only have, say, 12 intensive care unit beds in Goshen, then we want to try not to have more than 12 people who need an ICU bed at a time. And it's a lot easier to picture that kind of a match happening if we can stretch this epidemic out over a year than if the epidemic occurs basically in a month's time. And so that's really a lot of what that flattening the curve is about because um, having the rate of spread slowed way down, um, maybe we're still getting our personal protective equipment into the hospital, maybe we have enough ventilators, maybe we have enough healthy doctors and nurses to take care of all those patients, compared to uh, the situation in uh, in China where this started, where it just it just overwhelmed the healthcare delivery system. And while uh, China had this miraculous ability to build hospitals in ten days, we're not going to see that in the United States. We may be putting up tents to drive people through to get their testing done. But uh, even if we had a new hospital in ten days. We wouldn't necessarily have the doctors and nurses to staff that hospital, and it's it's just a very different situation than uh, than what they have in China.
0: So again, flattening that curve means slowing down the virus, really, so it can be matched to the healthcare delivery system that's available in in that particular community.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Doctor Nussberger, I have really enjoyed talking to you. Tonight, I enjoyed your podcast as well from March third, and I encourage any of our listeners here to go to Goshen News and search for that podcast. Uh, you you talked about many of the same topics, but some other ones as well. As a healthcare provider, I want to give a big thanks to all the other healthcare providers out there around the world who are taking care of all these ill. Patients. I want to thank all the support staff who are behind the scenes, cleaning the equipment, keeping the equipment working, the computers working, taking out the trash, doing all the wonderful things that you do and that you so infrequently get thanks for because you, you keep, you're you just as important as everybody else. And I want to thank MHF and Mennonite Incorporated for making this possible is that we could do this special podcast tonight as well. Thank you, Dr. Nofsinger.
1: You're welcome, and have a great evening. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I've been uh, telling the people I work with, keep calm and carry on. It is not a time to panic, but it is a time for us to pull together and, and do our best to protect the health of our communities.
0: Thank you for joining me today for Menno HealthCast. If you're interested in donating or getting involved with MHF, please go to our website and click on the link in the top right corner or email us at info at We invite you to financially support the mission of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship to help continue this dialogue about the intersection of faith and health. Musical credits to Paul Schlitz, editing and production credits to Eugene Stevanis, and I'm your host, Joanne Hunsberger. Please join us again next time.